<laughs> coming back. Uh, I just uh, used the metaphor talking with someone briefly, and it might be worth uh, kind of reflecting on it generally. Uh, a kite. It's really interesting that for a kite, you know, to soar and dance around and be its beauty, um, it needs to be tethered to the ground. If you let go of the kite string, the kite will flutter to the ground. So, sensing in the room a fair amount of kite dancing. You know, it's really wild stuff to consider, you know. I think it's continually useful to bring it back to the immediacy of our experience and to a kind of intimacy with ourself, right? And, and observing also, <clears throat> with the Dr. Phil question in mind, of <laughs> how's that working for you? In other words, what are the fruits? What are the results of more or less selfing in our direct experience, right? That's, that's where we keep bringing it back. So, with that as a kind of segue... Uh, I want to talk here about the paradox that I mentioned in the very beginning, that a major factor in selfing is the sense of being mistreated as a self or not feeling valued as, as a self, let's say, or loved or included. Right? When one feels voted off the island, that generates a lot of self-activation. Okay, So I want to explore with you how it is that we can do practices of cultivation. That's kind of a big word in Buddhism. Cultivation, bhavana, Hinduism as well, other paths too. The idea that we develop certain qualities of heart and mind, certain wholesome qualities, body of course as well. And um, these qualities feed us, they fill us, and they are means to the end. They are an end in themselves. They're, they're pleasant, they're, they're nurturing, they feel good, they draw us into wholesome mind states, but they're means to the end of the gradual undoing of the clench of I in the heart. As the slide says here, developmentally, it's part of my background in developmental psychology, I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds. You know, I'm, a, I'm the world's expert on this one narrow specialty of offering alternatives to toddlers rather than just saying no. I, I called it switch and engage. My wife called it bait and switch. But <laughs> if you're a parent with a little kid, it's a very useful method. But anyway, so I called it gratifying <laughs> control because it's got both together. It kind of interests me. Anyway, so in that larger context, you know, we need growing up as an enormously social species. We need to feel seen, held in the gaze of the other. Someone spoke uh, earlier about the pain. When, when we feel rightly or wrongly, um, whatever the distinction may be between intent, intent and impact, you know, we, we, don't, we feel dropped from the gaze of the other. Mm-hmm. We need to feel that being held in the gaze. Uh, we need to feel uh, wanted, included, valued, special. Right? So how do we hold these two truths? How do we hold that as is well evidenced in developmental psychology, kids need to feel special and they need to feel wanted and included and cherished and loved, right? How do we balance that with, while recognizing the emptiness and, as I've argued, the non-existence of the apparent eye, right? How do, we, how do we find a way in which the person feels loved, included, seen, and special without that tipping into the problems of selfing. So that's what the subject is here. Okay? And the key point around cultivation 
is we, if we're doing it skillfully and helpfully, I think, we don't do it mainly. A little bit might slip in, but we don't do it mainly out of craving, clinging, grasping, you know, and um, like my, you know. We, we take in these experiences, these positive experiences that fill the heart and gradually relax the need to become an important somebody in the minds of others. You know? We take these in as rafts, as means to the end of our own freedom, our own liberation from the compulsions of selfing. Okay? So, by the way, before we go on, any comment or question about this idea, basic idea, the paradox of it? Yeah, right there. So the question is, if we're trying to not be stuck in the apparent self, right, the presumed I, why would you want to feel special, right? Well, I think it's a need, isn't it? Or why would you need to feel... need to feel special in order to develop properly. Yes, yeah. It goes, it's a great question, and it goes right to that distinction between self and person, right? The presumed conventional I, this sort of being inside is distinct from the whole person. Human, human persons need to feel special. They need to feel cherished in their own individuality. Human persons are individual, right? There is only one you and only one me in the entire history of humankind. Um, that's perfectly valid and perfectly wonderful. And it's interesting to observe that as most people really let it in, below the level of superficial vanity. You know, I grew up in L.A., Right? You know, in L.A., the line is, so, enough of me. Let's talk about you. What, what do you think of my movie? <laughs> you know, okay. Below that superficial level of recognition, but where we take it really in, as I'll get into momentarily, we take it really into the to a core of our being, we, and we let it sink into emotional memory systems, and I'll talk about how in a moment. When we do that, it's very interesting. People get less and less hungry for it. You know, as they internalize approval, as they internalize love, as they internalize inclusion, they get less hungry for it, and they become more, you know, equanimous and resilient at moments of not having it. The situation of, of, of being starving does not require you to starve more. You actually need to feed food in order to, in order to gain... And if you look at the Buddhist story, the Buddha was eating one grain of rice... Uh, and went until he could touch his backbone through his belly button, and he said, "Well, this is not the path." <laughs> and that, and uh, and so asceticism, that whole you know, I I'm feeling unhappy because my unmet needs are met, so I'm going to fillet myself by saying, "This is this is my bad self." That's that's the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's great distinction yeah. right there. Good. Really good stuff. So to do this though. To feed the hungry heart, so it's less hungry and less generative of selfing. To do this, we need to be on our own side in the first place. We need to have basic self-goodwill. I'm using the word self here as person, essentially, very loosely. Um, So to have self-goodwill, or as we'll get to momentarily, self-compassion, using the word self there to really mean the whole person. Person Person-compassion, person-goodwill, 
there's an awkwardness there. So if you just kind of can put up with me using this word self in a different way right here, you know, how do we get on our own side, right? I've been a therapist a long time. I routinely see people who, you know, they don't care very much about their own pain, right? They're not very much for themselves. It's hard for them to be for self. They'll be for others, right? Um, they'll have, they'll really stand for universal values of compassions to compassion and goodwill and kindness for all beings, you know, without distinction, omitting none, except themselves, except the one who has their name tag, you know. And so that's why it's really important to understand why self-goodwill is important. You know, as the Buddha taught, his actual final teaching, variously translated, you know, one common way is be a light unto yourself, you know. Don't uh, look to others for your own practice. And then he goes on, there are trees, there are roots, I've told you what to do, now you have to, now go do it. Goodbye. <laughs> sort of, not quite. That would have been the Hollywood ending, but anyway. Um, I hope that was not heretical. Anyway. Um, there are no lightning bolts. In that, was the, that was it, you know? So, and again, you know, I think about values in the West, the Buddhism, Buddha had no monopoly on self-reliance, right? Very Western value as well. So it's to be on our own side, to be for ourselves, not against others, but for ourselves. So understanding the importance of that is very helpful, to understanding why, and also to have multiple experiences of it, because that's really what counts, you know, the stuff that sticks to our psychological ribs. So I propose to do a practice with you momentarily about self-compassion. As Pema Chodron great teacher, um, talks here. You know, the root of Buddhism is compassion. The root of um, compassion is compassion for oneself. That's really where it begins. Compassion begins at home. Many people naturally will then say, well, wait a second, isn't that selfish? Isn't that, you know, um, kind of all about me, 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 me? And actually, no. Because, as we'll see, when we mobilize compassion for ourselves, and this is what studies have shown too, we become more willing usually to, be, to treat others better. We become more resilient with self-compassion. We become less reactive to provocations from other people. You know, as they say in the monastery, think you're so enlightened, go home for the holidays. <laughs> you know, right? As we have compassion for ourselves, we get less reactive and self, which generates self with others. Okay. Have your and children come home for the holidays. There you are. <laughs> when our own cup runneth over, we have more to give to others. Bertrand Russell says here, you know, the good life is a happy one, not, necess- not because, you know, being good makes you happy, but rather because being happy, generally, with some annoying exceptions to be sure, but for most people, feeling fundamentally peaceful, fundamentally contented, fundamentally loved and included that then leads them to be good to others. That really supports their goodness to others. All right. Yeah, please, and then we'll do a little practice here. I'm wondering if this is related to the difference between self and person. In other words, your, 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 yeah. in some sense, that self is actually separate from your person. And yeah. It can be like, oh, I'm a good self. You know, I'm a good right. Meaning I'm you know, having all this negativity toward my person. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. I mean, the compassion is for the person altogether, including, and this is a a subtlety, but including for this sweet apparent character who thinks it's real, 
it's so important, and and yet actually it's just running behind the parade of the whole person that began long before it got there, saying, "Look what I've made." See, we can have some kind of compassion there, but compassion is for the whole the whole person. You know, as the Buddha says, if we can't take care of ourselves, how do we help other people? So let's talk about how to do it, and we'll do a let's practice here with it. So compassion, first, to be clear on the word, it's the wish that a being not suffer. That's the heart of compassion. It's a wish, an intention. Right? It's goodwill rather than ill will. Right? It's a wish, usually combined with an emotion of sympathetic concern. Self-compassion is not wallowing. It's not self-pity. It's a basic stance toward oneself that we would bring to others. Oh, you're hurting. Oh, that's hard for you. Oh, I feel with you. I wish that you did not suffer. Little technical distinction. Kindness is the wish that beings be happy. Compassion presupposes suffering in some way. All right? Um, kindness could be applied either to suffering or when there's no suffering, presumed. In practice, they sort of mush together. All right? So since self-compassion is actually difficult for many people, even though studies show that it's the foundation of resilience, or it's a major factor, certainly, in resilience as well as well-being in general. Um, Since it is a challenge for many people, there's kind of a neurological series of tricks that I'm going to take you through to build up self-compassion. Because among other findings, uh, you know, researchers have discovered that when we activate the neural circuits of feeling loved and included, that warms them up and primes them for us to be more caring toward others, including ourselves. Okay, you want to try it? Okay, about half an hour-ish. Okay, all right. So, maybe even a little less than half an hour. <clears throat> so if you can, just again, as usual, coming into being present here, a certain refining a certain steadiness of mindfulness... Maybe regrounding in the body if that's all right for you. If not, finding something else that helps you kind of establish a ground, uh, um, a steadiness. Otherwise, the body, perhaps in particular the breath. And in this particular practice, it's like there are two tracks to it. There's the mindfulness track. The Buddha talked about right or wise mindfulness, where we're simply aware of what's here without preference, without resisting what's unpleasant or chasing what's pleasant. We're simply here, open, letting mental contents, sounds, sights, thoughts come and go. That's the wise mindfulness track here. There's another track the Buddha also talked about, wise effort, where we make little efforts inside our own mind to essentially pull weeds and plant flowers in the garden of the mind, to encourage wholesome factors and discourage unhelpful, unskillful, painful, unwholesome ones. As we engage wise effort, sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't. So I'll be suggesting that you kind of encourage certain things to happen inside your own mind. If they do happen, fine. 
If they don't happen, fine. You can be mindful of that either way. And if they don't happen, you can be mindful of whatever the factors may be that are obstructing the particular positive thing, the flower you're attempting to encourage inside your own mind. Since when we make efforts, we can succeed or fail at them, it sometimes happens that when we fail, there's a tendency towards self-criticism. That's all right. Be mindful of that as well. And see if you can let go of that. See if you can let go of that particular weed, as it were, in the mind of self-criticism and return your attention again and again in this practice back to the positive thing you're encouraging. And by the way, this notion of these two tracks, or I think of these as the two wings of spiritual practice, personal growth, and psychological healing, the wing of being with what's there and the other wing of working with what's there. And it takes two wings to help a bird fly. So in that light, if you could, bring to mind someone that you know cares about you. It could be in your, a person in your life today or in your past, a human, could be a pet, animal companion, perhaps a spirit being, or a group of people. It's all right to use multiple beings. Bringing to mind one or more beings that you know cares about you. In other words, you matter, perhaps they like you, perhaps they appreciate you, they include you, perhaps they even cherish and love you. The relationship as a whole need not be perfect, but at least one slice of the relationship pie is that they wish you well. So bringing to mind one or more of these people or beings who cares about you See if you can help that become an experience of feeling cared about, of feeling included or liked or seen or appreciated or even loved. Opening your body and your mind to feeling cared about in one way or another. Perhaps strengthening this sense with a hand on your heart or as if the most compassionate and caring being in your life or in the universe put a hand on your cheek. Just keep scanning various <clears throat> people or situations, looking for ones that really help activate, help stir up and evoke the feeling, the experience of 
in one way or another feeling cared about, liked, included, or appreciated, or loved. If nothing comes, it's all right. If the opposite comes, it's all right. See if you can let that go and keep trying to call forth some sense, however subtle, of feeling cared about. Be mindful of the experience in your body, in your, in your torso, in your throat, in your face, or the attitudes in your mind of what it's like, the emotions you're having, what it's like to feel cared about to whatever extent this is present for you. Know this experience. Make room for it in your mind, perhaps so you can find your way home to this again. Even sensing that this experience of feeling cared about, however it's present for you, is sinking into you, even as you sink into it. In the second step of this practice here, letting the feeling of being cared about, in a sense, move into the background a little, bring to awareness someone that is easy for you to feel compassion for, easy for you to care about, easy for you to wish that this being not suffer, perhaps a friend or a child or a an animal, or maybe a group of people, opening to compassion, the wish that a being not suffer. Perhaps strengthening the sense of compassion with soft thoughts in the back of the mind, such as, may you not suffer. or maybe knowing something of the specifics of their life, may your chemotherapy go well, or may you find work, or may you realize that middle school is not forever. allowing compassion to fill you, to radiate from you in all directions. Compassion as the object of attention primarily.
knowing what the experience of compassion is, what's it's like in the heart or the throat or the face, and also what it's like in the mind in terms of attitudes or ideas. And then in the third step, continuing to be mindful of what the experience of compassion is like, in the third step, extend the same attitude, the same wish to yourself as a child. Maybe getting a sense of you back in time from memories or photographs or perhaps a sense of the younger layers of the psyche in each of us today. Wish that young person well. Perhaps thinking of times of particular challenge as a child or particular pain or difficulty, particular suffering, perhaps. And deepening the feeling of compassion, the stance of compassion if you like, with soft thoughts, like may you not suffer, or something specific, like may you know that it's truly not really your fault. May you know, really, what a sweet, good person you are. May you know that you're just one small part of a much larger mess. Whatever it is for you, regenerating compassion for yourself as a child, even if you like moving through different episodes or different time periods in your childhood, which includes the teen years, extending compassion to that person that little, vulnerable, innocent boy or girl. And if you like, as a kind of bonus, perhaps sensing somehow that this compassion, there is compassion, is sinking in to the younger layers of yourself. The child is receiving, perhaps, this compassion that's coming. Softening and opening around receiving compassion.
Then in the fourth step, imagine yourself growing up, moving through childhood and then moving into young adulthood, years passing, events occurring, moving toward the present. We'll take a few moments here to extend compassion to younger adult versions of yourself, either kind of out there or with a sense of them layered in your own psyche today, reflecting on times that were challenging or painful for yourself as you've moved through adulthood up to the present, and taking a few moments here, maybe zeroing in on a few key difficult passages or events And see if you can extend compassion consciously, deliberately to the the person who was suffering in those situations. The person to whom those things did happen. not getting swallowed up by the pain, continually reasserting this stance of compassion that's not overwhelmed by the pain, that's extending good wishes. And if it's meaningful as well, perhaps kindness and love. moving toward the present, recognizing, of course, you can't cover a lifetime in a few minutes here, looking for just a key few issues in your adult life before now. And then coming into the present, here and now, Sunday, December, extending compassion to yourself here and now, in your life these days. Being aware of challenges, difficulties, pain, loss, present or impending, everyone has this. Extending compassion to yourself here and now. Perhaps with phrases like, may I not suffer? May I be truly happy? May this body be at ease. May there be a healing. May I find work. May I not get so upset with my 
teenagers. Whatever it is for you. May this health scare go away. And then moving in (coughs) to the fifth and final step, abiding in this core experience of compassion, start extending compassion to future versions of you. In other words, the you who will be moving into 2012, going through things in 2012, some pleasant, some unpleasant, inevitably, and extending compassion to yourself, moving forward through the Christmas period, if if that's relevant to you, and then moving into the new year, if that's relevant, and then, you know, being in 2012, spring and summer and fall now, roughly a year ago, ahead. Just imagining yourself going through some things, maybe dealing with some difficulties, kind of extending compassion, almost like kind of throwing a ball to a future self to catch it, to a future version of you to catch. Seeing yourself going through things in the future, maybe ones you know for sure will happen or maybe others uh, feared possibilities. And in these challenges, these stresses, these losses, sending compassion to the person you'll be. Going past 2012, further ahead, five years, ten years, perhaps anticipating inevitable transitions, family members passing away, children leaving home, careers coming to an end, the body getting older. Imagining the years unfolding, heading toward old age, the last year or two of your life. Again, extending compassion to yourself, going through those various things as you approach the last year of your life. 
not being swallowed by suffering, standing apart from it in some way, extending compassion into the suffering, into the pain of the loss. If you like, anchoring yourself in soft thoughts like, may I be okay when the kids leave home? Or, may I, may I be alright with being alone? Or, may I have enough money to live reasonably on? And then, approaching the last year, we'll all have a last year of life. Most of us will not know when we cross that line. Imagining yourself in the last year of your life, the inevitable difficulties that occur in the last year of one's life, and extending compassion to that future person You will be. May you be well. May you not suffer. May you be at peace. And then if you can, and if it's uncomfortable, you know, you don't have to, but... Imagine your future self, your future person, approaching the last few days of life. It's coming. And dwelling in compassion, the primary content in the mind is compassion. For that future being in the last few days of her life or his. Wishing her well, wishing him well. and approaching the last few minutes of that person's life. Sending compassion, staying resolute in your compassion. Your compassion is with that future you. Sending compassion up to the last breath. Good wishes, kindness, love, 
good heart. All the way through the last breath and perhaps beyond. Compassion. Recentering yourself here and now, taking just a moment to allow whatever is there to continue opening, easing, perhaps, opening into being here and now. I always feel very touched, actually, and grateful that people let me take them on that trip. And um, I, I kind of do it with you. It's really quite profound, at least for me. Anyway, any comments on just what that experience was related to self-compassion? And then we'll slide on to the next way to fill the hungry heart. Please. Thank you. Uh, if you didn't hear her, basically said, um, recognizing this sort of ultimate challenge of, for compassion and the and ultimate importance of it at that at those last moments and breaths, etc. Um, if if one can muster compassion for th- for that, why not treat oneself better today? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Okay, another person right there. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Michelle. Mm. Breaking apart a, a, an old view, a congealed maybe kind of brick-like you know, view, mm-hmm. a fixed view, as it were, of oneself as a teenager and seeing you know, the elements. The, it's like unpacking, right? <laughs> a knot. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Michelle. 
Alright, any other reactions, things that happened? Reflections on self-compassion in your own case? Oh, great, right there. Thank you. That's great. It worked. I think a lot of stuff happens when we're kind of a little bit out, and that's okay. It sinks in, and I'll talk in a moment about how to, in, how to more uh, deliberately internalize these positive experiences. But I'm sure there was some kind of fundamental taking, psycho, in, the good, psycho, taking in the good that was occurring there. Psychoneurohematology. <laughs> that's it. That's it. All right, maybe one more, and then I'll keep going. That's great. Thank you. So self-compassion, including about things like falling asleep when one's tired, in a meditation practice after lunch, you know, in a kind of, you know, winter afternoon, right? So thank you very much for that. You know, Mm. if I could just keep going, if it's all right. um, uh, Sometimes people think that they have to deserve compassion or self-compassion, and they don't. And that's why I like this lyric from Leonard Cohen, a longtime Zen practitioner and heck of a guy, I think. he says, we're all cracked. All right? That's how the light gets in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So then <clears throat> I want to talk briefly about something that is a day-long workshop we could do, et cetera. It's a chapter in our book, Taking the Good. Um, the question is how to actually internalize these positive experiences, like self-compassion, or as we'll get to momentarily, you know, feeling, feeling of worth, like a good person. And so this is where these three steps come in. We did not invent them, but we're really trying to unpack them and clarify what it actually takes to take a positive experience and transfer it, in effect, from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. What does it actually take? And interestingly, as you probably may have heard me say, the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. That's because the brain is designed to register negative experiences just like that, with dedicated systems. Once burned, twice shy. But positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, have standard, plain vanilla, if you will, memory systems. And as any school teacher knows, um, people typically have to hold information in awareness 10, 20 seconds in a row, often with repetition, for it to transfer from long-term, pardon me, from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. Since we don't routinely do that, effectively, positive experiences continually flow through the brain like water through a sieve, while negative ones are caught every time. That gets sucked into implicit memory, emotional memory, and has a lot of consequences for well-being, clinical issues, spiritual practice as well. The alternative is to tilt toward positive experiences in order to simply level the playing field. We're not resisting the negative, but we're appreciating a feature of the brain that was um, uh, useful back when we were evolving in the Serengeti is today, in effect, a bug. It's like a design flaw in the brain. 
that wears on quality of life, wears on spiritual practice, wears on health, because the negativity bias of the brain generates stressful reactions. And it also wears on longevity, because the more of those stressful reactions you have, you know, the shorter the lifespan, generally speaking. So, these are the three steps to tilt the brain toward becoming like Velcro for the positive and more and more like Teflon for the negative. So I embedded some of these suggestions into the self-compassion practice we just did. And I just want to say from now on, as we talk about feeding the hungry heart, we'll be drawing on these three steps. So any questions or comments about this bit? And then we'll use this to go into another practice. This little bit right here, again, we could do a whole workshop on it. It's one of the most important things mm-hmm. to know right. about self-directed neuroplasticity, about changing your, using the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better over time. Because the brain is constantly changing its structure, moment to moment to moment. The only question is, is it changing for the better or the worse, and who's doing the changing? <laughs> Those forces out there that are sending negative stuff our way, ranging from macro forces and you know, out there in politics, economy, internationally, the media, and so forth, or local micro forces, like the people snarking on us across the dinner table. Yeah. Or in the mirror in the bathroom. Or in the mirror in the bathroom. Well said, Ricardo. Right on. It's that inner stuff that really is whipping on us. The other, the, other, the other thing that you're doing with this um, that just came to me is that I've looked at this slide a bit, a bit during our talks. This is a way of tilting the dopamine transmitter system reward salience chemical. Dopamine is the, is the system that's sort of that luscious reward piece uh, but it's also the thing that, det- that determines your importance. Whatever activates dopamine in your brain de- determines the importance of, uh, of the next behavioral event. This is why evolutionarily, the amygdala, which is a hardwired dopamine you know, drive, uh, was designed to be activated, pump out dopamine so you didn't get, didn't get eaten by the leopard. This is, this is activating dopamine in your own brain to drive these... these uh, positive facts into positive experiences uh, and just literally manipulating your own neurochemistry. Yeah. What I like doing too sometimes, just as a detail, you know, if you, if you, if you get something of value, right? Like you realize something in therapy or meditating or talking with a friend or just walking down the street, you know, what an opportunity to help it kind of sink in and stick to the ribs. Moments of self-compassion, moments of basic peacefulness or basic happiness or basic lovingness, letting those really sink in. Okay, one person, then we'll maybe slide to a practice. Yeah. Um, so could you give some examples of changing positive facts into positive experiences? Like I can think, for example, I had two great meals today, you know, I had plenty to eat, and then just sort of turn that into a lot of emotion about it or a lot yeah. of feelings. Mm-hmm. So how to, how to do this? Okay, so I'll just take a minute on this. I would say on my website, if you like, uh, I have slide sets from workshops I've taught for therapists and the general public on taking in the good, a whole day-long workshop that unpacks a lot of this. And I think we, we have the audio for, of a fair amount of that stuff. So there's a lot of background material there. Okay. Um, so we, we, we find good facts in three basic ways. One... We find them just in the moment. Things happen right now, okay? 
like I recognize the good fact of, I would say, the thoughtfulness and respectfulness in your question right now. Right? Mm-hmm. right now, I ain't dead yet. Right now, air is kind of warm. Right now, we live in an environment where we push a button and the room gets warmer. I mean, wow, that's fantastic in human history. Right now, I'm sitting next to my good friend Rick. He rocks. This is good. These are facts right now. That's one source of facts. Second source of facts is from memory. We recall facts, right? We bring to mind, you know, the smell of uh, oatmeal cookies in our grandmother's kitchen. We bring to mind a time when we did something difficult and challenging, but we felt an inner strength. We call that up again, right? We recall a time, you know, when someone really cared about us. The, th- the third way to find a good fact is it's a yellow flag, but frankly, it's to imagine a good fact that never happened. That's problematic, right? And it's not as powerful, but sometimes that's the least bad thing. That's what we can do. And, you know, I've had personal practices like that. I've imagined things in my young childhood that didn't happen, but by imagining them, I can evoke very healing experiences for myself. Well, we, we're so, well, I speak for myself. I'm so prone to catastrophizing and imagining bad things that I might as well counter it. <laughs> oh, right. right. You right. could imagine good things that right. could happen. Exactly right. So that that would be, thank you. That's like a subset of the third category of imagined events. All right. So then when we encounter these facts, and it's about facts, when we encounter these facts, either immediate experience or through recollection, let's say, mm-hmm. then what we try to do is we try to let the needle move. We try to feel it. You know, we all had situations where, you know, a good event has occurred, we haven't even noticed it. Or we noticed it, and we kind of shrug our shoulders, eh, whatever, move on. You know, this tends to surface obstructions in the mind to feeling good, which include things like, if I let myself feel good about good facts, I'll either lose my edge or lower my guard, and that's when I'll get whapped. Or if I let myself feel good, that's somehow disloyal to my depressed parent, my disabled sibling. I mean it seriously, or something else. Or if I let myself feel good, that kind of goes against perhaps gender conditioning. You know, a kind of, if you will, male warrior stoicism or female classic. I'm generalizing massively with many obvious exceptions. That said, gen, uh, female socialization tendencies that uh, women should make others feel good and not worry about making themselves feel good. Right? Whatever it is, we often encounter obstructions. That's why this first step is actually quite powerful because it surfaces a lot of stuff. You start turning over those rocks, who knows what might scuttle out from underneath them. <laughs> All right? And then in the second step, you get those neurons firing together as long as possible, as much in the body as possible, and as intensely as possible, so they wire together as much as possible. In effect, in the second step, Usually privately, we savor the experience. We relish it. We let it be as big as possible. We help it become big. That's why being on our own side is the requirement for this practice. Otherwise, why would we do it? So, in effect, from a meditative standpoint, the second step is like an absorption practice for 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. We we make the positive experience the object of attention and and try to become absorbed within it. And then in the third step, we prime memory systems with intention. Just like if you had a wonderful experience, I'm thinking of a sunset in Hawaii with my wife once in Maui. I thought, even in the place of extraordinary sunsets, this one was really, really extraordinary. This one was extraordinarily extraordinary. Anyway, I went, remember this. I can see it now, honestly, right now, because I remembered it. Well, we can prime memory systems in the same way, by sensing and intending that the experience is really going in, like water into a sponge, with children I'll talk about, a, treasure, a jewel into the treasure chest of the heart. 
Those are the three steps in a nutshell. Okay. And, be, and being extraordinarily compassionate towards yourself regarding the awkwardness with which you will encounter this practice the first 150 times you do it. Well, or a lot of people, they yeah. just naturally, because we know how to savor, we know how to yeah, relish. Yeah, yeah. If we just make room for that in our minds right. for the 10 seconds, the 20 seconds, right. it's those little, you know, 15 second intervals half a dozen times a day. The last right. thing I'll say about right. this really fast is look for key positive experiences. In other words, all positive experiences are, are basically good, right? And some are kind of universal healers. Feeling cared about is a kind of a universal balm to the soul, to the to the to the psyche. But if you have particular issues, look for the particular key positive experiences that will be the vitamin or the medicine for that issue. The short version of that for me was, for example, as I grew up in a relatively safe environment, no abuse, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of issues around feeling threatened, right? So avoiding threat was not a big, issue, was not a big need for me. Second, I, would, you know, I was able to go off in the hills around our home in L.A., kind of get away. Uh, I was well-behaved, so I figured that out quickly as a great strategy to get off my parents' radar so I could do all kinds of stuff under the radar. <laughs> I could do that. I did okay in school. Good. I didn't have issues with approaching reward. You know, so my issues were not with avoiding those carrots or approaching those sticks. But, because I was very young going through school, I really felt like an outsider. Felt like I was looking at the other kids, um, the cool kids especially, like through a wall of glass. And so for me, the needs around attaching to us, around feeling seen and prized, that's where the hole in my heart was. So then in adulthood, when I stumbled on this method in my early 20s, I realized, wow, this is fantastic. I can feel good, and by feeling good, I can heal my neurotic psyche, which was pretty neurotic at the time especially. See what I mean? I was looking for the particular vitamin C, the particular food that would fill the hole in my heart, my issue. So that's the last detail. And There's a lot more about this. We're going to keep going. Uh, a lot more about this in the material on taking the good, which for me is also a very powerful aspect of therapy and can be, as well as other modes of personal growth. All right. Okay? All right. Now you want to feel good about something else? All right. Can you stand feeling good about something else? You want to stand up for a moment? A little breath? <laughs> feeling good about standing up? Say hello to someone by you. That's very stimulating. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. Okay. Want to come back? Okay, great. So now sit down, please. Where's the bell? (laughs) Oh, sit down, please. Sorry. My mic went away. Set it up for you to do from four o'clock. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we'll take a break at three forty. Yeah. Okay. Come on down. So now I'm going to string together two little practices. First is about feeling prized, and then then I'll segue into feeling like a good person. These are just some of the key elements of the narcissistic, the healthy narcissistic supplies. Uh, that can help undo selfing, 
The first being feeling cared about and related to that self-compassion, caring about oneself as well as the sense of others caring about one. One is cared about through two pathways, others who care about one and oneself who cares about oneself. All right? And then in addition to that, a sense of feeling prized, you know, of value, of worth, wanted, sought. And then last, we'll get to feeling like a fundamentally good person, deep down. Doesn't need to be a saint, no halo required, but a fundamentally good person. Now, a little detail here about feeling prized and and also feeling cared about. It's often the case that what comes up, because the brain is a giant associational network, when we bring up something positive, it associates to what's negative. Right? Anybody have the experience? Just opening up, trying to recall, feeling cared about, suddenly you think about being kicked out of the tribe, whatever, you know, unloved, dumped, you know. Voted off the island. Yeah, all the rest of that. Not good. So that's okay. Also, there's a tendency to feel, particularly with regard to others, well, the, the, I know you, feel care, you cared about me in these ways, but you didn't care about me in other ways. So the ways you didn't care about me taint or spoil or ruin the ways that you did care about me. That's very common, right? Or, speaking of being prized, yes, I did accomplish this and that, but I didn't accomplish those other things. Or, yes, people hired me for this or valued me for that or gave me an award for such and such, but they missed other things or they criticized me in other ways. Ugh, that's so deflating, right? And that's where it helps to have a little bit of attentional control, mindfulness training, to direct the spotlight of attention toward that which is going to be helpful for me right now. And attending to, shifting the spotlight of attention to, you know, the missing slices of the pie, that's not particularly helpful right now because the design flaw of the brain is to gravitate in that direction already. We don't need to help the brain go negative, right? Mother Nature and Fox News are doing a good job already. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, we need to stand for ourselves just to level the playing field. And so that's where, for example, a little story here, I thought of my mother, who's Loving person, no longer alive. My dad's still going strong, 93, has a full head of hair and an intact mind. You know, he's really a winner with the ladies. <laughs> anyway, so um, my mom, wonderful person, loving, big personality. You know, one of these people who expresses love by helping you realize what's wrong with you so you can make it better? Yeah? Okay. And so, yes, I had a few reactions uh, to that personality. And it was like this thing coming at me, brambles, thorns, and so forth. And nonetheless, somewhere again in my early 20s, not sure exactly when, I began to realize that it wasn't helping me to react to that surface and blow off what else was there. In other words, react to the part of the pie I didn't like. And I started sensing through the, I thought of it as like a lattice work with vines and brambles and my mom's personality to the fire of her love for me that was always there. Even when it wasn't apparent, I would presume its presence, and I would help myself feel it, and I would look for it. And I started increasingly ignoring her personality. I started ignoring almost the slices of the pie that were not there or were annoying or whatever, and just kind of uh, zeroed in on the food that was helping me. I did it for myself, not to let my mother off the hook, although it led me to treat her a lot better over time. You know, And so that's it. That's the kind of idea when we're going after here around whether it's feeling cared about, or in this case, feeling prized, 
or like a good person. We're going after those slices of the pie, those facts, that evidence, acknowledging whatever else is the case, but helping ourselves, being a friend to ourselves, kind to ourselves, to take in the supplies that we need. Okay? So let's try it. So again, as before, we're going to be trying to evoke some states of mind. Mental states become neural traits. You heard it here. With repetition and practice. (laughs) So by repeatedly cultivating positive states of mind, we gradually build up their neural circuitry. So we're trying to call forth positive states of mind here. So in this particular case, if you could, if you can bring to mind a time where someone really appreciated you, or was grateful to you, or complimented you. Perhaps a group, perhaps a surprising acknowledgement from a boss, perhaps someone who, again, it's all, maybe there's other parts of the pie that you know were problematic, but maybe someone who just pursued you in love, who just thought you were really wonderful, even if perhaps that feeling wasn't you know, fully returned. Um, maybe a dear friend, maybe a group of people. And as you can, calling to mind these moments, or at least one, where you were complimented or, or valued, recognized, see if you can let that sink in and become a little experience, or maybe even a, a growing experience, of feeling of worth. Just think of other times, deliberately helping positive experiences of worth to be evoked. Thinking of other things that bring up a feeling of worth, such as accomplishments, including modest accomplishments sustained day after day, like just getting the laundry done routinely, you know, just getting to work routinely. not losing it (laughs) at holiday dinners (laughs) routinely. Or maybe larger accomplishments. A poem written, you know, a a pass caught in high school, a rock climbed, a, a baby birthed, a friend supported, So many things accomplished. And in the process of a kind of perhaps reflection, maybe diving deep into one situation or simply almost scanning your life over time, whatever works for you. You know, as you do that, helping that become an experience of being accomplished, of being someone who contributes, who offers value, who is of value.
And as you evoke these experiences, you know, you're letting good facts become good experiences. That's the first step of taking in the good. And then as you can, give your mind and body over to these positive experiences. Let yourself sink into them, savoring them in the second step, helping them be as intense as possible. And all the while, in the third step, letting them sink into you as you sink into them. Reflecting perhaps on some of your abilities, the things that you're able to do, including seemingly modest things, like in my case, make good French toast, Uh, whatever, just accomplishments, abilities. And then in the, let the recognition of the fact of your many abilities become an experience of feeling able. And last on this part, if you like, bring to mind one or more beings in your life today or in your past to whom you're special. They have a special feeling for you. It could be, in my case, my cat, our cat. It's probably not the right word. We are its humans, but his humans, I should say. You know, special to a friend, maybe in your life today or in your past. That that experience of the fact, the recognition of the fact that you factually are special to them, and then, then letting the recognition of the fact of your specialness to them become an experience, if you like, of being special to someone, having a special place in their life and in their heart. Continuing to let these positive experiences sink in to the extent they're present, not struggling to make them come, more opening to them, being gentle with yourself. And then shifting attention to a recognition of the facts of some of your good qualities. Recognizing, for example, the simple fact of your basic fairness or the fact of your determination.
for the fact of your willingness to see good in others. Or the fact of intelligence, musical talent, truly in your heart wanting others to be happy. And as you recognize kind of a relaxed survey of these good qualities in yourself, not letting your attention be hijacked by things that could use a little work, continuing to focus on existent, factually, objectively true, good qualities in yourself, not needing to be a saint or a superstar to have human good qualities, as you recognize the facts of these things, opening to and letting it become more and more of an experience of being a fundamentally good person. Letting it sink in, the sense of being a good person. What's it like to feel like a good person? Not perfect, but good. Perhaps bring to mind another person that you know is a good person. It's easy for you to recognize them as a good person. Being mindful of the experience of recognizing that another is a good person. And see if you can apply that same experience to yourself of recognizing that you are a good person. As a bonus, if you like, on the basis of being a good person, on the basis of feeling prized in many ways, maybe exploring letting go of 
needs for approval. Needs for adulation, applause. On the basis of the enoughness already of your worth and the reality of your worth. If you like, as a bonus, sensing what it might be like to lay down or release or unpack or step away from desires for approval or applause. what's left when there's no need to glorify the I. It's fine to continue to let, you know, there be reverberations from or ripples from doing practices and continuing to help them sink in so that they be, you know, we're weaving these resources into the fabric of our brain and our person. All right. Any experiences you'd like to share during those uh, practices or, um, you know, any questions about how to practice with this territory. Please. Uh, when I feel something good about myself, I often feel chills going up and down my spine mm. and wondering if there's actually a neurological basis to getting chills <coughs> triggered by an emotion. It's a sympathetic rush in a way, right? Yeah. A sympathetic nervous system yeah. and there's a little zip. Uh, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Great. So he, he asked about getting chills when he recognizes a good thing about himself. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the whole goosebump aspect of things is is sympathetic nervous system. If yeah, you know it's the. Um, it raised our ancestors' hair. It's yeah. called pilo erection. It's a funny word, goosebumps. It's to make you feel. It's to make you, you know, in a sense, is to make it makes you feel bigger. Yeah. Because with the with the with the hairs erect on the animal, the animal gets big. Right. And Although so for all of the things against yeah. which you struggle. You know, particularly those those inner voices that say, uh, you know, I'm not a good person. If you get this rush, you're getting bigger, and the and the thing against which you struggle gets smaller. That's yeah. Thank you. That's nice. Yeah. yeah? When, I, when I when I was practicing doing the, the exercise, when when the yes buts come up, do you just 
Yeah, when one is doing a practice like this, what to do with the yes buts, right? Um, I think sometimes what's really helpful is to, it's a little bit like doing a concentration practice. You know, thoughts arise, but we're here to go back to the breath. I think of it a little bit like lifting weights. I'm here to lift the weight or yammer my story about it, you know, and it's lifting the weight that's productive or, you know, resting as I need to between weights. So sometimes when we do practices, we're there to do the practice because we're training the mind in some way. We're going after key positive mental states because we want to build up those neural traits. Other times, sometimes a yes but comes up and it's like, wow, what is that? And then it's more productive. We drop the practice for a while to explore the obstruction. And then we try to engage those two wings of practice. We be with the obstruction. But we also, when the time is right, we work with it by reducing the negative aspects of it and encouraging the positive ones. I'll admit it. I've clocked a fair amount of good self-therapy time while meditating. (laughs) Because stuff comes up and you go, wow. You know, and then it, again, if you're working with it rather than indulging it, you're there to pull the weeds and plant the flowers related to that mess. But okay, great. A few others, please. Yeah. Connecting this afternoon and this morning, during this practice, seems like it's much more in the doing mode than in the being mode. I think it's interesting. So I think that rings to some extent right, and I think to build on your point there, maybe or your your observation, mm-hmm. it's not that the doing mode is bad, and I think the higher kind of the higher stages, if you will, you know, maturation or growth, is that we, we integrate doing and being. We, we, for example, may engage doing in a larger frame of being, which I think is often the case. People talk about that. That's what the zone is, I think. People are engaging doing in a larger frame of being. Um, it's also the case that, as people have pointed out, the path is essentially to differentiate and then integrate. It's hard to integrate if we, can't, if we haven't yet differentiated. And for most of us, it really helps to differentiate out the being functions, the being mode, because that's less prominently trained or present in our everyday life. So thank you. Yeah. Okay, back there. You know, what is... Yeah. That's a great question. Thank you. So here's someone who's trying to, who's you're engaging it, right? You're doing in the mind. You're bringing to mind virtues or characteristics of a good person that you know rationally. I'm assuming. You know rationally they apply to you, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we got those pieces done, right? But darn, can't get over to feeling it, right? And that's so common, I think. Not at all uncommon. What to do about it. Sometimes I think it helps just to hold on to what we know to be true, even if we don't feel it. You know, even if 1% of us knows what's the case, that 99% is screaming noise and gibberish and lies, that 1% makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? You know, um, 
That's one thing. Another thing is to deliberately pick low-hanging fruit. I'm a pragmatist. You know, I've been practicing for a long, since really my late teens, early 20s, and, you know, and professionally uh, as a therapist for quite a while. I'm a, you know, the most important practice is the one that people will do, you know. And so whatever is the low-hanging fruit, you can just pluck and get benefit from, great. So pick something simple, you know, like um, depending on the person. Like for me, it's very natural to recognize my determination. I'm a determined person. And I can feel it. It's, and I have palpable experiences that, whether that's moving something physically or continuing to engage work, you know, toward a goal. Um, you might have something like that for you. And just accessing that basic sense of determination that's right in front of your face. Or the basic, like I just, honestly, I don't know you at all. And I, I could feel your, your basic benevolence, your kindness. You know, you wish people well. It's really clear. Bing. I want an opportunity to feel like a good person. So we're, we're, and underneath all this are two important things. One is we're resourceful and on our own side. We take our stand with Captain Kirk and we reject the Kobayashi Maru scenario. We reject the no-win scenario. Okay? Quick sidebar, shameless sidebar. The Rafael Film Theater is going to do a showing where they have science people talking about a film. And I'm going to do the first one on the Star Trek Wrath of Khan movie, which had the Kobayashi Maru scenario. We're going to talk about helplessness and resilience in that context. <laughs> January 29th at the Rafael in San Rafael. should be a lot of fun. If you're really into that, it's kind of wacky. Okay, where was that? So, we're resourceful. That's so important. We're a hammer, not a nail. We're a cue ball, not an eight ball, inside our own mind. You know, we take up arms against our oppressors. Where do most oppressors live? Inside our head. Right? As Rick said earlier, it's the one inside your head that's often the hardest. So we're active, we're resourceful, we're standing against the tendency deep in mammalian biology, whether it's dogs or humans, the tendency toward learned helplessness, right? Which is a major risk factor for depression, anxiety, health problems, etc. So we're resourceful, right? Picking that low hanging fruit. The other thing is implicitly, in the practice itself, there's a bonus. Implicitly, we're on our own side. Implicitly, we're treating ourselves like we matter, which is particularly important if we've you know, had experiences of not mattering enough to others. See the idea? We get two benefits when we do practices. We get the explicit benefit, and we get the implicit benefit of being active rather than passive and treating ourselves like we matter rather than that we don't. Right? Okay? How about one last person, then we're going to go further into the deep end of the pool. All right, right there. Yeah. I have a question just about a state feeling. So after this meditation, I kind of get this really warm, fluid, like full energy flow. And I know you were talking about dopamine as this thing about pleasure. And I also wondered, is there oxytocin involved? Are you getting like self-oxytocin going? Or oh, yeah. What else is happening? Yeah, her question was, uh, when, you, question, when you are doing practices like this, often there's this kind of luscious, loving feeling, if you will. And... I think the truth is neuroscience is a baby science, right? And it's quite probable, Rick may add to it and then we'll scoot on, but it's quite probable that when we do this kind of self-love practice, if you will, we are activating the same neurotransmitter systems like for oxytocin, which is also a hormone. If the chemical operates in the brain, it's a neurotransmitter. If it operates elsewhere in the body, it's a hormone, but it's the same chemical. 
Okay, oxytocin, same molecule. Anyway, we're getting that luscious feeling that a mother might have with her baby at her breast or lovers being skin to skin or in a devotional experience with a teacher or the divine perhaps. We too might have that experience with ourselves, dropping into self-care, self-advocacy, and you know, self-prizing and so forth. One of the, one of the lovely coincidences in this, if you look at, at uh, the paradigm for taking in the good of actually having it go about 30 seconds... Uh, is the actual exact parallel with how much physical contact it takes to stimulate oxytocin. Uh, if, if it's a touch and go, it doesn't work. But if I sit here <laughs> and rub his shoulders for 30, mi- 30 seconds, 30 minutes, yeah, here we go. <laughs> the rest of the meditation, I'll be rubbing Rick's shoulders. Uh, but if, 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 if I rub his shoulders for 30 seconds, there's actually oxytocin that gets established. Like a threshold. A threshold cool. effect. Not only with mm. him, but with me. Mm. And so if you're doing this, compa- you know, I was just thinking about this, in this whole compassion practice you know, that Rick was doing, t- uh, if you think about that whole caring, holding, holding, cradling, cradling myself in the last breath of my life. Peace. Uh, I mean, that, that's like, a, like an oxytocin rush. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you actually, you, mm. you, that in these practices, you not only set up the experience right now of warmth and, and caring on the on the cushion that you're sitting, but you're setting up the with the intention, you're planting seeds in the future, so that when that happens, mm. the seed to you know to, and literally the karmic seed in that concept, the the karmic seed to generate. That compassion and lit maybe perhaps even that sense of caring, compassion, and ease into the hereafter. You see how that works? Yeah, cool. Yeah. No, that's neat. Hey, okay, then I'm going to keep going. You're the last. I just saw an article last night that says that the same thing that you're talking about, but that watching somebody else have that experience does the same thing for you as getting it. Yes. To repeat what she said, right? Uh, she's saying that that watching somebody else get that get that experience. You know, I'm presuming we're talking about the oxytocin. So you're all getting an oxytocin rush. Keep doing it, Rick. Help them. <laughs> Help them. <laughs> Do it for them. The Not side. for me. Yeah, Not for me. Right. For them. <laughs> but that, yeah, that's actually very true. Uh, and this brings up a whole uh, another workshop day um, of mirror neuron systems. Uh, and I'll say mirror neuron systems because it's not clear that there are mirror neurons in human in human anatomy, but it's quite clear that we have mirror neuron systems, and so we as a as a species completely attuned to each other. Uh, and actually, I had a whole discussion at lunch with somebody about this. I read emotion and how my words are coming across in terms of reading your face as I look. And quite honestly, if you're if you're watching. You know, as we as we got up and did the thing where you were looking at other people, did anybody catch the eye of somebody across the room? Okay, you're literally reading them at fifty, seventy, a hundred feet. When you're when you're out there on the African uh, uh, on the African savanna, you need to know who's the, who, what that dude at a hundred feet is about. You know. Uh, you know, or or what or what is happening? Are they looking at you? And and, and that it gets very very detailed to read. So we actually literally, what happens when you have a neuro neuron system is that seeing the experience in you brings it forth in me. Quite literally, the same neurons 
that would be involved, the same systems that would be involved in the sensory experience of whatever is happening with you at the moment, whether it's compassion or love or fear or terror or whatever. It will arise in me, and that's how I will understand from a gut sense of arising in the insular cortex that we're talking about. That's how I will understand what is happening in you. That's how you read somebody. It's interesting just to reflect on how treating one other person well really does send ripples out and affects the others who are watching that or learn about it later. Okay, so um, I want to take about 20 minutes up to a break, if that's okay, and uh, talk about two basic ways of, uh, two perspectives on the world, moment to moment. And this piece here is based on the work of James Austin, who is a neurologist and a Zen practitioner. And he wrote a really marvelous book. He's written a number of books on the brain. First one, Zen and the Brain, That Thick. Second one, Zen Brain Reflections, That Thick. You know, uh, the, the first one sits underneath my computer monitor, hopefully giving it some mojo. You know. The third book, Selfless Insight, I recommend. It's on the reading list because it's thinner and you can ignore a lot of it. Just go right after the part that's really speaking to you. Okay, here's a neurologist to write two tomes that you can't comprehend. So I'm going to do this in like three parts. Okay, so part one is that attention basically has three functions. All right, the first is this alerting component to attention where something has happened. Okay, just imagine you're just just hanging out, you're reading a book, and then there's a sound in your home, right? You don't know. In the first half a second in the processing stream, you don't know what it is, where it is, what does it mean. Something has happened. That's all you know, this general alerting you know, piece. Then comes the second and third components of attention, which is to orient to the event, to try to locate it, okay? And then begin to initiate um, a kind of response to it. In the very beginning, what do I need to notice to respond to the sound of an alarm going, a fire alarm going off in my home, right? What? Do I need to remember how long it's been since I replaced the battery? Do I smell smoke? That very first part. Now, those things happen very quickly, within a second or two in the brain, but when you have neurons that are firing on average five to 50 times a second, you know, a lot of stuff can happen in a second or two. All right. To simplify... I'm not, I won't get into the neurological detail on this stuff. There's a lot of detail in Austin's book. Basically, the alerting uh, action or function in the mind is accomplished by one neural network, and orienting and responding are accomplished by others. The, alert, the alerting function is more on the side of the brain. Interesting how that goes to the lateral networks of being, right? Whereas the... Um, Kind of orienting and responding are more midline. They start moving more into doing. Makes sense. The first point. The second point is that um, in the thalamus, which is this big switchboard in the brain, and sidebar nomenclature, there's two of almost everything in the brain, like in Noah's Ark. Two thalamuses, two hippocampuses, two amygdalas, etc., two, two insulas, 
The convention is to speak of them in the singular, which is kind of... Two hypothalamus con- make one hypothalami or something like this. There you are. <laughs> exactly. It's a little confusing. People talk about them as singular. That said, we've got a thalamus switching station, big switchboard. All the sensory information comes into it and then gets bounced out to other parts of the brain, which then feed back to the thalamus. There are different nodes in the thalamus. And one set of nodes takes what's called an egocentric perspective to sensory stimuli. In other words, what's this got to do with me? What's the relevance of this to me? Okay? Where is it in relation to me? Can it hurt me or help me, friend or foe? That's the egocentric perspective. All right? We know what that's like, right? It's routine to have an egocentric perspective in terms of just how we relate to events. They're in relationship to impact over here. How's that relevant for me? How's that salient for me? Why should I care? Right? Why should I keep reading? What's this got to do with me? Why should I keep listening? Okay. Then, also in the thalamus, different nodes produce an allocentric, which means whole or impersonal, other-centric view, all-centric view, in which we regard events, sounds, sights, sensations, thoughts, desires, what have you, from a kind of third-person, impersonal perspective. Which sounds a lot like, doesn't it, that bird's-eye-view perspective that really also supports being mode activation, the lateral networks of the brain. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the allocentric processing streams overlap with the alerting processing of attention. Austin's thesis is that through training, and he's a Zen person, so his practice is very much what's called just sitting, shikantaza, which really emphasizes the alerting function. Every moment's a new moment. You know, there's a continual represencing of the now and letting go of everything else, which calls upon over and over again the alerting function of attention, which also strengthens the allocentric perspective. And also around that in Zen and in Buddhism in general, as well as many other spiritual undertakings, there are other practices that support allocentric processing. You know, being the whole body rather than just part, seeing the big picture, decentering one's perspective from me, looking at the world through multiculturalism, postmodernism, what have you, through the eyes of others, through the lives of others. That those are multiple kinds of things. Perspective taking, where we imagine, as Rick said, what it's like to be them over there. You know? That also supports the allocentric mode. Austin's theory, plausibly. He's very interested in what's the neurology of Satori or Kensho. Moments of kind of, that's very common in Zen, especially as also other traditions have things that are either the same or akin. Um, It's a moment of just kind of loss of self and uh, a very often sensorily powerful experience of being emptied out into the world and one with the world. It's what I said previously, when me falls away, you know, it's Dogen's quote, right? To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things, right? As me falls away, the world stands forth really prominently. Austin's theory is that as we train in the alerting function, 
in open awareness, just sitting modes of practice, very much coming into the now and letting go of everything else, which is very much being mode, right? Really in the now, letting go of everything else, that strengthens the capacity of the person for allocentric processing. And then, one so strengthened, goes out in the world. Most Satori events don't happen while meditating. Isn't that interesting? They don't happen while people are on the cushion. They happen typically in nature, often based on surprise, and often looking up to the horizon. Well, surprise tips us into a learning. There's a sound, you know. Or to use the haiku from Basho, uh, it goes like this, I think. Um, Moon in a bucket, the bottom falls out. Literally, there was a monk carrying a bucket of water, seeing the moon reflected in the bucket, and then the bucket, an old bamboo bucket, broke. The water fell out. He was awakened right there. Okay, so like that. There's a quality of startle and surprise, which goes to the alerting function. It also activates lateral networks. They're activated by surprise. Humor, for example, activates lateral networks because there's often a startle effect in humor. And, okay, and they were looking up because if we look close, that's egocentric because it's really close. It's either a carrot or a stick, and if it's a stick, I really better pay. Either way, I need to pay attention. What's this got to do with me? If it's far away, I have the luxury of seeing the big picture of looking at all in personally. And so that, and also I should add one less detail, is that... I've got something on you. I need to. In the brain in the thalamus, there's an ongoing um, switching back and forth several times a minute, naturally, between the allocentric and egocentric perspective. And you can kind of see it in your own experiencing. It'll, there'll be kind of a, what's this got to do with me? And somehow seeing everything from a 5,000-foot view, impersonally. You know, not in which my, my, this perspective is not privileged. Okay? And then it goes back to privileging this perspective, because this is the one that's relevant to me, right? And then it goes out to big picture. There's this natural process of switching back and forth. Austin's theory is that as in this wave, allocentric, egocentric, allocentric, egocentric, people train themselves through meditative practice, especially the ones that stimulate the alerting function, this just sitting, just being, now, 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 radically now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.